ND Votes is a nonpartisan campaign of the Center of Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, and the Constitutional Studies minor at the University of Notre Dame that promotes voter education, registration, and mobilization. ND Votes fosters conscientious engagement in political and civic life among students. In partnership with ND Student Media, ND Votes would like to introduce our new podcast, Pizza, Pod, and Politics, a virtual initiative in place of our signature event, Pizza, Pop, and Politics, during the time of COVID-19. Our goal is to educate students about the voting process, different political issues from a nonpartisan lens, and mobilize students to turn out to vote this November. I'm Rachel Subnani, co-chair of ND Votes and senior science pre-professional major here at ND. This episode hosts the audio from a debate ND Votes and Bridge ND, another civil discourse focus club on campus, hosted between representatives from college Democrats and college Republicans. This debate occurred on NDTV in partnership with ND Student Media and Student Government's Department of National Engagement during Civic Engagement Week. The goal of this debate was voter education, as much of the debate was focused on policy and civil discourse. Without further ado, here it is. College Republicans and College Democrats. I am Greg Miller, co-president of Bridge ND, a club on campus for ideologically diverse political conversations. And I'm Rachel Subnani, co-chair of ND Votes, a nonpartisan campaign for voter registration, education, and mobilization. We are honored to co-sponsor tonight's event, which is the first of many of Student Government's Civic Engagement Week. We applaud this commitment to improving political engagement on our campus. We would also like to thank ND Student Media for providing us with the resources to bring this educational tool to you, our fellow Notre Dame student body. This country's political climate is in crisis, yet we may often overlook that the same people that created this culture were once in our shoes, attending prestigious universities like this one that we call home. How is this possible? And can we do any better? Attending the University of Notre Dame has the possibility to propel us all into positions of power. And we must arrive there with the tools of civil dialogue and intellectual humility. Tonight, we ask viewers to critically engage with all arguments. Criticize, find areas of agreement, and carve out your own political beliefs. The intention of tonight's event is to educate students about other college students' ideologies and how they inform their public policy decisions, and to engage in discourse to enhance, not hinder, our understanding. If we can do that, not just tonight, but in all of our civic life, then we have the possibility to create a better political climate for this nation. It is also our aim to help students cast an informed vote. We urge you to continue educating yourself, civically engaging in your communities, and discussing with your family and friends in order to understand what you are voting for every time you cast a ballot. Voter registration and education resources can be found on the ND Votes page of the Center for Social Concerns website or at the link in our Instagram bio. Tonight's debate format will commence with opening statements from both college Democrats and college Republicans about what philosophy informs their political views. We will then ask questions where the respondents will have one minute and 30 seconds to respond to each question. Follow-ups will be allocated 45 seconds. Participants may ask for a follow-up or may be prompted by the moderators. The questions this evening will be separated into three policy areas, social issues, economic issues, and foreign policy. The event will then conclude with concluding statements from college Republicans and college Democrats. And now to introduce our debaters. Representing college Democrats will be Patrick Imany and Zach Holland, and representing college Republicans will be Adam Morris and Charles D. Yockey. College Republicans will now present their opening statement. 
we are experiencing tumultuous times in America with basic questions regarding the role of government and the legitimacy of our institutions being asked. It is worth reflecting on the principles on which this country was established to see how we are doing in fulfilling the American experiment. Jefferson wrote in the Declaration that government is instituted first and foremost to secure the right to life. This is a right that must be defended for those, both those born and unborn. The second duty of government is to protect the sovereignty of the nation. Our founders shed their blood to earn America her independence. Yet for many years, our leaders have made a mockery of this hard-won independence and diluted the value of American citizenship by failing to enforce our immigration laws. Property is another core right inherited by the American people. Recent decades, however, have seen a massive intrusion of government into the sphere of commerce and the establishment of a healthcare market that is all but socialized. The security of all these rights is predicated on the rule of law. Without the presumption that laws will be enforced, no society can flourish. Unfortunately, recent months have been characterized by violence committed by political radicals. With so much at stake, the question we are faced with this election is, will we preserve what is left of the values, freedoms, and institutions we have inherited? Despite his many flaws, President Trump has proved himself to be an unapolog unapologetic defender of American exceptionalism, the rule of law, and the rights of the unborn. Thank you again to student government for hosting this wonderful event. Charlie and I are blessed today to have this opportunity to come before you to debate and to defend conservative values as we struggle with each other and work together to construct the future of our great nation. College Democrats, your opening statement. Before I begin, I'd like to thank student government and Bridge ND for hosting this amazing event and to the College Republicans for being participants. I'd also like to point out that this stage does not look like America. There will be four white men up on this stage tonight, and they will be debating issues that disproportionately affect women and people of color. And while our perspectives are valid, they cannot capture the millions of perspectives across America that are much more familiar with injustice and failed public policy. I ask the audience to keep this in mind as we debate tonight, and I invite you to look into more resources with the activists on the ground that are familiar. To start this debate, I'd like to name a few of the things that the Trump administration has done over the last four years. They have embraced nationalism and fascism, fear and division, dividing us for political gain. They have embraced voter suppression efforts and rejected policy proposals that would make our nation more democratic. They have tear-gassed protesters and locked immigrant children in cages. They have tried to take away the health care of 20 million Americans, and they have actively failed to address the climate crisis. They have failed to protect us from the COVID pandemic, and now over 200,000 Americans are dead, nearly 70 times the death toll of 9-11. And when asked what their plans are for the next four years, they simply re-released their platform from 2016. The next four years will not be any better than the last four years have been. Nothing will get better with another four years of Donald Trump. It is downright embarrassing that this is the platform from which we must argue. The American people deserve better than this catastrophe. And you're going to hear the Republicans tonight try to justify or explain the results over the last four years. They even may deem them acceptable. Do not be fooled. This has only been a success for the most privileged among us, while the rest of the masses are given scraps and told to be grateful. We can do better than this. We can be better than this. And over the next hour and a half, Patrick and I will show you just exactly how we can do that. Thank you. We will now proceed to the social issues portion of the debate focusing on racial inequality, immigration, and abortion policies. To the Democrats, 
The Black Lives Matter movement has accelerated, and so too have peaceful and less than peaceful protests. How should the government respond to the protest, and which policies, if any, should the government implement to address racial inequalities? First things first, we would like to reiterate, Black Lives Matter, today and every day. We believe the Black Lives Matter movement speaks the promises of equality that have long been denied. So we believe there are several government policy changes that need to be taken in response to this movement. First, we need substantial criminal justice reform. The practice of plea bargaining, which resolves 96% of all federal court cases, as well as mandatory minimum sentences and policing practices, which disproportionately in, uh, impact communities of color, should be changed, and the Supreme Court should reconsider its decision in McCleskey versus Kemp, which closed the courthouse doors to claims of racial bias. We also need political reform. As long as African American and minority communities are disenfranchised across America, representatives won't need to listen to their petitions. So we should reapply Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act to safeguard every American's right to vote. We should overturn horrific court precedents like the recent 11th Circuit decision allowing a functional poll tax in Florida. And we should ban gerrymandering so that every vote counts. We don't need more information. We know that racially disparate impacts exist. We need action. And we invite you to join us in this fight. Thank you. And to college Republicans, what do you make of the current movement with massive protests of racial inequalities? And how do you propose violent crime in urban areas be mitigated? The murder of George Floyd was certainly horrific. And I agree with Mr. Floyd's brother that the officer who committed the crime should get the death penalty. Unfortunately, the incident has led to the perpetuation of a false and destructive narrative about law enforcement in this country. About one in 10,000 arrests made by law enforcement results in an officer using fatal force. And in well over 90% of these cases, the use of force is justified. Moreover, police shootings of unarmed African Americans constitute 0.3% of all black homicide deaths. So the notion that the police are making it dangerous to be black in America is simply overblown. Urban violence is certainly a huge problem in this country, and it does affect black Americans more than anyone else. So what should be done about it? Well, from 1993 to 2000, this country witnessed a miraculous 50 plus percent decline in gun violence, thanks in large part to a strengthened criminal justice system, including enhanced mandatory penalties for career criminals who, uh, commit, gu who commit gun violence with, with firearms. Unfortunately, Joe Biden wants to eliminate mandatory minimum sentencing entirely. This will result in early release and reduced sentencing for the most violent gun offenders in our criminal justice system causing many more lives to be lost to gun violence, especially black lives. To college Democrats, I'll give you 45 seconds to respond to the claim that enhanced, to, that enhanced criminal justice system will be better for the urban community. So first of all, I think it's shocking that Republicans on campus would call for increased sentencing when one of the few good steps of this administration has been criminal justice reform and reducing sentencing. And I think that we can no longer look to solutions in our carceral state. It might feel good to exact vengeance on criminals or try to punish them, but that's not going to create solutions that will, cre will create long-term change in this country. Adam is right that it's not just police that make it difficult to be black in America or dangerous. It's America that's made it that way. And structures including the police, including the court systems, and all of which need reform. Again, the stats are out there. Just because you might consider it a minor problem doesn't mean it's not a problem and not an immediate problem for people of color across America. It requires solutions. Thank you. 
Notre Dame is not free from its own controversy. I'm going to allow both sides to address this issue, starting with Republicans. Should the United or should Notre Dame not allow faculty to invest in private prisons? I'll start with Republicans. I haven't done enough research into private prisons specifically to ter determine whether the conditions there are better than or worse than in public prisons. However, I will note that only about 8% of the prison population is housed in private prisons. And I also like to challenge Pat's notion that our justice system focuses too much on punishment. In fact, 75% of those convicted of violent crimes serve less than three years in prison or no prison time at all. And if you break down the numbers, 72% of those convicted of rape or sexual assault, 77% of those convicted of robbery, and 95% of those convicted of assault serve less than five years in prison. So in reality, what we have in this country is, in fact, a lack of justice for victims of crime. I'd like to address the core of this question, which is our role on campus and something student organizations such as SRI have been doing really great work on, which is to reduce Notre Dame faculty investment in private prisons. Private prisons are an importance. Even setting aside the worst conditions and the incentive perverse incentive structure that encourages private prison groups to lobby for increased sentencing to keep more people in prison, nobody should be making money off the imprisonment of another. We're called to visit people in jail, not profit off of them. And I would encourage us all to internalize the important ethic that when anyone is unjustly in prison, I am not free. That starts with our pocketbooks and with our investment decisions. And I would call on every member of Notre Dame's faculty to divest from their pension funds being placed in public prisons. I challenge you with that today. Thank you. We are a campus where Notre Dame's Catholic identity makes one question particularly of interest, abortion. What restrictions, if any, should the government impose on abortions? College Democrats. None, point blank period. A woman should have a right to her own body. And the government needs to trust women to make the best decision for themselves and their families. I could bring up all the science on the subject, and we could have a discussion about when conception begins. But in the interest of tailoring this to a Catholic audience, I will say this. Abortion is heartbreaking, and I wish that there were much fewer of them. But a ban on abortion does not reduce the number of abortions to zero. It reduces the number of safe abortions to zero. And as with any government ban, the rich will circumvent it while the poor suffer. If you want to decrease the number of abortions, you have to alleviate the conditions that cause one to consider it. You have to fix poverty so that finances are not a problem. You have to increase access to birth control. You have to increase access to childcare so that time is not a problem. And if you fix the circumstances that cause someone to have an abortion, you can significantly decrease the number of abortions. This simple fact is why the number of abortions have actually decreased under democratic presidencies. When having a child is less of a hardship, the number of abortions declines. I think that the government needs to trust women to make this deadly serious decision. It is deeply personal and extremely difficult. If the government is interested in decreasing the number of abortions, and I think they should be, then they need to do work to alleviate the circumstances that cause someone to consider. College Republicans. Abortion is the direct, intentional taking of an unborn human life. The fact that one human being is dependent on another for survival does not change the moral fact that it is intrinsically evil to take an innocent human life. The fact that a child will be born into poverty, that it will have a disability, or that it will otherwise provide a hardship for on a family does not justify its murder. Defending the sanctity of life is the most important function of civil law. 
Unfortunately, we have reached the morally absurd point where, in the state of New York, for example, where the death penalty is outlawed, you cannot give the lethal injection to a mass murderer, but you can give a lethal injection to a baby in the third trimester. I believe the practice of abortion should be outlawed entirely. Some may ask, what about rape? The fact that the pregnancy is unintended is not the fault of the child and does not in any way diminish its right to life or justify its killing. In cases where the life of the mother is not at stake, abortion is not morally illicit. However, procedures necessary to save the mother's life that may result in the child's death as an undetended consequence are certainly okay. An example of this would be the removal of a cancerous uterus. This procedure is morally neutral. However, when performed during the pregnancy, when necessary to save the mother's life, it will have the unintended consequence of you know, resulting in the death of the fetus. This, you know, this action is distinct from abortion, however, because the primary intent behind the action is not to abort the child, but to save the life of the mother. Thank you. On to a different topic. A defining characteristic of Trump's platform has been strong immigration enforcement. How do you view the impacts of undocumented immigration from the southern border, and what policy proposals would you propose to address the millions of undocumented immigrants in the United States? College Republicans first. There are two consequences of illegal immigration I would like to address. First, it threatens America's national security by empowering violent cartels. Nearly every mile along our southern border is controlled by Mexican drug cartels who profit off of the movement of illegal immigrants through their territory and strategically, the flow of, strategically control the flow of goods and people along the border to ensure that drugs and criminal aliens can enter the United States undetected. Illegal immigration also hurts the American worker. George Borjas, a professor of economics and social policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, notes that a 10% increase in the size of a skill group due to immigration decreases the wage of that skill group by about 3%. And because those coming across the southern border tend to work predominantly in lower skilled occupations, Americans without college degrees are hurt most by illegal immigration. As to what should be done regarding those already here, my position is clear. There should be no consideration of any amnesty until we have a secure border. Joe Biden wants to pro provide a path to citizenship for those here unlawfully. Even Obama rejected such an idea in a 2010 speech when he said, quote, it would suggest to those thinking about coming here illegally that there will be no repercussions for such a decision. And this could lead to a surge in more illegal immigration. President Obama was absolutely right when he said that. Until we restore the sovereignty of the American people, any amnesty is off the table. I'd like to respond to a couple of things there. First of all, Adam would like to pretend that legal immigration in the current system is even a feasible pathway of establishing a life in this country. People with the legal entitlement to be able to immigrate say you're the sibling, uh, you're from Mexico and you're the sibling of an American citizen. If you apply to immigrate to the US, which again is your right under American law right now, the estimated wait time for your application today would be 130 years. This is a broken system and one that President Trump and the Republican Party have no plans to fix. He brings up the concern about economics, and this is just flawed. You could look at the theoretical addition of 10% to a labor pool that was hypothesized by one Harvard economist, or you could look at the facts on the ground where a Texas state comptroller in 2006, a Republican elected official, did a study and found that the presence of the undocumented community in Texas contributed $17.7 billion in one year to the Texas economy, 
and in addition, a net $420 million in boost to state revenue. Legal immigration is not feasible right now, and to take it out through immigration enforcement, immigration customs enforcement, which breaks apart families and conducts raid on, raids on defenseless, undocumented immigrants in the United States, aiming to make their lives harder rather than easier, is a betrayal of the American creed, which recognizes that we're all immigrants. We all came here at some point, and we all deserve the opportunity to make a better life. Thank you. I want to follow up on that to Adam. Patrick made the claim that the wait time is currently 130 years, that we're living in a broken system. How do you respond, and what should be done about that, if anything? Well, Pat when Patrick was saying that it's very difficult to immigrate into the United States, it was simply not doesn't match up with the current facts. In fact, about one million people receive green cards every year, and the percentage of the population in the United States, that's foreign. Good evening. And welcome to tonight's conversations between representatives from Colorado is about as high as it has ever been. On the point of the economics he brought up, a 2008 report from the U.S. Uh, Commission on Civil Rights found modest to significant evidence of a negative impact of illegal immigration on black workers. The Democratic Party always wants to portray itself as the party of black workers, but in fact, illegal immigration has a negative impact on them. Once again, we see a classic example of trying to pit justice for immigrants against justice for minorities and people of color in America. And that's just not how it has to be. The legal immigration system is broken, yes, and there's no plans to fix it. In fact, just this last month, the USCIS increased, it, inc it almost doubled fees for citizenship and naturalization for legal immigration. It eliminated almost all fee waivers. Uh, the public charge rule instituted earlier this year made it almost impossible for immigrants of poverty to immigrate legally to the U.S. And for the first time ever, the Trump administration said, if you want to come to the U.S. fleeing persecution, you have to pay a fee. That's not justice. It's not right. And no amount of pointing to studies can justify the fact that we are deserting our fundamental moral obligation to care for people when we defend the current immigration system. Can I just Thank you. a few points there? We're moving on. So far, we've discussed three of many social issues. And of particular interest when discussing many of these social issues is the role of the Supreme Court. We would like to take this time to acknowledge the passing of trailblazing Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her dedication to holding this country to its highest constitutional ideals. How should your party handle this and any future Supreme Court vacancies to college Republicans? The foremost concern of the Republican Party in appointing justices to the Supreme Court are, is those who are fair, principled, and believe in ruling for the original meaning of the Constitution. I disagree with my colleagues on the left on judicial philosophy, but I would hope that we could all agree that the Supreme Court is far more than a political instrument. The Supreme Court should always be above politics. To put the nomination of justice on the ballot is dangerous and it politicizes what should be a neutral body. In 2016, the late Justice Ginsburg said that it was the obligation of the Senate to assess Judge Garland's qualifications, and she astutely remarked that, quote, there is nothing in the Constitution that says the president stops being the president in his final year, end quote. Today, I agree with Justice Ginsburg as much as I did in 2016, and I said at the time that Mitch McConnell's tactics were obstructionist at best and constitutionally suspect at worst. What happened to Merrick Garland is a shame. Make no mistake, but we cannot allow that inconsistency in 2016. 
to set precedent moving forward. First, I'd like to acknowledge that Justice Ginsburg was an icon of the court, not only in her fervent litigation for women's rights, but Justice Scalia called her a tigress on issues of civil procedure. And her dissent in the issue of Shelby County versus Holder still inspires me and attests to the state of, of voting rights today. As much as it pains me to say this, anyone who knows me knows that I really respect and admire the Supreme Court. But the court today is tainted with partisan bias. Senate Republicans invented a rule in 2016, which my opponent might not have supported, but he'll reap the benefits, and vulnerable communities across America will suffer the harms of the outcome of that rule of not having Garland on the court. And then they pushed another nominee through despite a credible allegation of sexual assault. So as much as it pains me to say this, and as much as I respect the institutional legitimacy of the Supreme Court, it's already been made partisan. And so if Senate Republicans try to fill this vacancy before the election, or in the lame duck, if Democrats cannot stand idly by while Republicans attempt to cement judicial rule by minority. That's not how the American system is meant to work. And so I would call for Democrats to respond to any illegitimate attempt to tear up the rules that Senate Republicans invented and enforced four years ago to tear those up by responding with a new Senate majority by increasing the, the size of the Supreme Court. To safeguard the integrity of the courts, I propose a constitutional amendment specifying the number of Supreme Court justices at nine people at any given point in time to prevent either political party from packing the court. I fear that we are returning to the 1930s, a much darker time in our political history when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt suggested adding more justices because it would help his New Deal era campaign. If we cannot trust the courts to impartially interpret the law, we can have no rule of law in this country. Mr. Yagi, it's a respectable proposal, but the courts are already partisan, and you can't turn back time. So I would love it, too, if, if Senate Republicans who are in the minority or in the majority right now could say, we're going to wait. We're going to let whoever's fairly elected in November decide this, decide this Supreme Court nomination as they did in 2016. But if that's not the case, then the rule book and the institutions are already out the window, and there's nothing we're going to be able to do to get them back. In the words of Justice Ginsburg herself, we should evaluate President Trump's judicial nominee. We'll, we'll move on from that, but that was a great discussion. Thank you, College Democrats and College Republicans, for those thoughts. We now move on to economic issues, the focused portion of the debate where we'll discuss climate change, health care, and the effect of COVID-19. To College Republicans, Republican members of Congress created the Republican Roosevelt Conservation Caucus in 2017 with the goal of environmental action while maintaining free market principles. How do you propose addressing climate change while upholding your values of minimal government interference? Make no mistake, climate change is important. And as conservatives, many of our party leaders have forgotten that we should aim to conserve. Theodore Roosevelt certainly had this ideal in mind when he created the U.S. Forest Service in 1901 and invented the national park system for the enjoyment of generations to come. However, it's possible to be good stewards of our environment while also being good stewards of other people's economic liberty, and we cannot regulate ourselves out of climate change. The only viable path forward is to embrace free market solutions. 
solar power is now cheaper than virtually any fossil fuel energy in almost every part of the country. Why is this? It's because the United States has a market framework that incentivizes the development of solar technology that would not have been possible had the government mandated solar technology as necessary. Those technological advances would not have been possible in the absence of this market framework. We need to empower the energy industry to innovate through competition, and eco-socialism assumes that fossil fuels are so efficient the government must intervene to move away from them. As Republicans, we completely disagree with this contention. We would allow consumers to control preferences for price, reliability, and source to pursue affordable, reliable, and cleaner energy. First of all, the premise of this question is nonsense. Republicans lost all claim to the idea of limited government when they expanded the national debt, expanded military and police powers, and implemented trade barriers over the last four years. Secondly, I agree with my opponent that climate change is undeniably real and we are in the greatest threat of our lives. Point blank, the world needs to get to net zero emissions by 2050, preferably sooner. We've already damaged the environment, we may damage it more, and there is no limit to how bad it can get. I'd like to point out to my opponent that we've tried the free market for the last 30 years. We've known that climate change was real since the mid-1990s. The year is 2020. We are still in grave danger. The danger has probably gotten worse. We've tried his idea. The free market did not solve this problem. And so what we need to do is implement regulations that are legally binding and that we can prosecute corporate uh, corporations to the fullest extent of the law if they do not comply. We need to invest in fossil fuels. Use, invest. <laughs> in alternatives to fossil fuels, solar, wind, hydro, and nuclear. We need to invest in new forms of transportation that are dependent on these fuels, high-speed rail and electric public transportation. We need to convert all buildings to become energy efficient. The government can sponsor grants to do this. And we especially need to establish new emissions laws and prosecute company leaders that do not comply. Our future depends on it. We've tried this option. It did not work. Now it's time for the government to get involved. Thank you. I'll give college Republicans a chance to respond, but I also want you to address the idea of a stimulus to help, um, to help combat climate change. Certainly. I'd like to point out that capitalism has facilitated some of the most important advances in reducing CO2 emissions ever yet seen. The development of a capitalist system and a free market economy has allowed innovation to flourish and has developed virtually all technologies we have to combat climate change today. The government should aim not to use incentive structures to combat climate change, but instead to remove barriers to innovation. This is a far better approach to the problem that we are facing today. I would also like to note, and this is extraordinarily important, that China today emits more carbon dioxide than the United States and the European Union combined. While certainly none of us are spared from our obligation in combating this crisis, regulation incentivizes cheating on disclosure requirements as it has for China under the Paris Accords, and it does not affect genuine behavioral change. This is why I do not support any sort of incentive structure, but instead believe that the government should aim to reduce barriers to innovation. Thank you. And Zach, I'll give you a moment to respond. Yeah, first of all, I'm not denying that innovation has led to some of the greatest advancements, but at some point, innovation has to lead to implementation. And we haven't seen any implementation from the market. His beloved free market has resulted in climate change accelerating. We have the technology, they just are not in place. At some point, we need to implement laws that mandate people to follow these regulations. He also makes a great point about China. They do actually have a lot of the climate change, a lot of the responsibility for climate change. 
And so we do need to use as much domestic pressure as possible to force them to reduce their emissions. But that's only possible if we don't come across as hypocrites. Because when we can't regulate ourselves, all these emissions that are going on, how can they expect us to follow? We need laws that mandate, we need laws that mandate the, the slow of climate change. Thank you. Moving from climate change over to healthcare. Democrats have proposed massive and varying solutions to our health care in the United States. To the Democrats, does the United States have a health care problem? And if so, what should be done about it? First of all, this is just an absurd question. Absolutely, we have a health care problem in this country. 44 million Americans do not have health insurance. Another 38 million are undercovered. Over 20% of our country is at risk of dying simply because they cannot afford medical care. So how do we solve this? First of all, we need to guarantee health care for all, and we do this by moving to a single-payer health care system, similar to that implemented by Senator Bernie Sanders. This system guarantees health care for all, and it lowers overall health care spending. Let me repeat that. It guarantees health care for all, and it lowers overall health care spending. Those are the two primary issues, and it already solves it. It removes hundreds of billions in administrative costs, hundreds of billions more in prescription drug costs, and it simplifies the unbelievably complex American healthcare system, and it covers care from nearly every doctor and pharmacy. In case you aren't convinced that there is a problem, COVID-19 has shown the entire country the flaws in our healthcare system. And it's made clear that it is only as secure as the worst insured, worst cared for person in this country. We cannot approach this from an individualist perspective. Public health is a collective effort, and our policies should reflect that. Additionally, employer-based health insurance means that millions of Americans will lose their coverage in the event of an economic crisis, precisely when they need it most. We are the richest country in the history of the world. We can afford to make sure that everyone can see a doctor. No one should die because they're too poor. Surprisingly, I agree with my colleague on the left. The United States most certainly does have a health care problem, though the problem that we conceive of is very different from the one that they do. I think that it's a problem that since 2013, the average health care insurance premium has doubled, that health care has never been more expensive in the United States than under Obamacare. I think that it's a problem that the Congressional Budget Office projects that 44% of all future increases in entitlement spending come from Obamacare's expansion of Medicaid, very similar to the single-payer health care system my dear colleague suggests. I think that it's a problem that in the United States, competition in medicine is not allowed to exist. Patients cannot buy insurance plans across state lines, which means that only one in five counties in the United States of America have access to more than two insurers under Obamacare. Socialized medicine is a failed experiment. Plans such as Medicare for All and a single-payer healthcare system certainly are not the solution to the problem that they have created in Obamacare. The best way to fix this problem is by embracing free market solutions as President Trump has done during his tenure in office. By signing four executive orders, the President has guaranteed transparency in the pricing of pharmaceutical drugs, created a competitive worldwide drug marketplace, and President Trump has done more than any other president, including Barack Obama or his Vice President Joe Biden, to lower the cost of prescription drugs. If America is to solve its health care difficulties, it needs to embrace more of the same policies. Well, to respond to that, I think the fundamental assumption under any free market health care system is that somebody should... The possibility that a poor person could not receive health care simply because they're poor, and I think that's unacceptable. 
My opponent says that socialized medicine is a failure. In other countries with this, poor people do not have to worry about paying when they go to the doctor. It's not even on their mind. The only thing that should matter when going to see a doctor is getting better because healthcare is a human right. You should not have to worry about going to a doctor. This will bring costs down and it will ensure healthcare for all. I cannot think of anything better. Charlie, I want you to respond to this claim that other countries are doing better than the United States with single-payer systems and that it lowers overall spending and other, any other claims you want to respond to. Certainly. The claim that this would lower overall spending is absolutely ludicrous in my opinion and the Congressional Budget Office, a nonpartisan agency, would certainly agree with me. If we look to socialized medicine regimes in other similar countries, Nordic countries for instance are touted as a fantastic example of this policy, but what do we see in those countries? Ballooning wealth inequality, not income inequality, but wealth inequality, and ballooning social expenditures, laddening these countries with debt. This is not sustainable, this is not a good course of actions, and we also see wait times in countries like the United Kingdom and Canada, countries very similar to the United States, that far exceed um, wait times under a free market system of healthcare such as we exist in the United States. We, there is a reason that world leaders and the wealthiest individuals, those who have the most access, come to the United States for healthcare. They go to the Cleveland Clinic, they go to the Mayo Clinic, they go to the Massachusetts General Hospital to receive their, their healthcare, and it's because we have the best healthcare system in the world, and that cannot be explained away. Can I touch on that? Yeah. Sure, yes. First of all, the CBO analyzes government spending. I'm talking about overall spending. You increase the amount of government spending and you decrease the overall amount of spent on healthcare. Second of all, I'd like to address the question that the United States has the best healthcare system in the world because I agree, the United States does have the best healthcare system in the world for the wealthy. The poor do not. And why do you think other, people for, other wealthy people from other countries come to the United States? Because they benefit here while the poor hung out to dry. We need an equitable solution to health care, and the free market does not provide that. Thank you. Um, this just in, we have an announcement for the people downstairs. If you guys could just spread out a little bit more. <laughs> Social distance, put your arms out. Um, on that topic, we're going to switch the conversation to COVID-19. Um, COVID-19 has accelerated inequality and has left many worried about eviction. What is the best response to this virus-induced recession, college Democrats? A moment. First of all, we don't get to an economic recovery without a recovery from the pandemic. That's both a statement that the economy works for people and not the other way around, and a statement of fact, because demand's not coming back until people are comfortable going back out in public. So step one is getting people in the leadership, especially Joe Biden into the president's office, who believe in bringing the pandemic to an end as efficiently and as safely as possible. Second, we gotta recognize that some public health practices have big economic effects and some of them have small costs. And we have to strike a balance where we're willing to do the small things like wear masks so we don't suffer the big costs like having to shut things down again. But when you've got people out saying on national radio that quote, mask wearing should not be a universal practice, that sets the whole cause back. And third, we need direct assistance to families that have been affected by the pandemic. This would have been a lot easier this summer, but McConnell and Senate Republicans put a hold on any phase four assistance legislation. So now, rents are, are, are under the bridge, and now families are worrying, well, am I gonna get evicted before I can make up the past payments? And so we need a couple policy, concern, uh, couple policy resolutions. First, we have to extend the eviction, the eviction moratorium and mortgage forbearance periods so people can catch back up on their mortgage or rent payments. 
Second, we have to substantially increase aid to state and local governments that had to step in when the federal government didn't help people out. And third, moving forward, we have to recognize that this places a particular burden on working parents of young children and expand the child tax credit, expand access to health care, all of which are democratic priorities in order to make sure that parents can weather storms like this effectively. In order to best respond to the virus-induced recession, we must continue down the path that President Trump has blazed and embrace the power of the free market, as it was doing in the beginning of his term, to continue creating prosperity for all Americans. Certainly agree with my colleague that the first step in combating this recession is dealing with the COVID issue. However, we on the Republican side believe that the COVID policy must focus on risk management and balance many interests. From the beginning, we have not had a unified idea as a society about what our goals have been regarding COVID. At first, it was the mitigation of cases. Then it was mitigating the loss of human life. However, we believe that we need to, like other pandemics that have struck us in the past and like any other national crisis, balance all interests so that the greater good can flourish. And we believe that doing this is best served by empowering individuals to make free and informed choices. We believe that we need to continue to further stimulate critical industry and use capitalism as a tool to lift people out of po poverty. Moreover, we believe that we need to continue to embrace free monetary policy as Jerome Powell, the Trump appointed chair of the Federal Reserve has done in order to ease interest rates and grow the economy even more. Allowing states more autonomy to address their problems on a localized and individual basis is the only way to proceed. The federalist system and federalism are our greatest assets in combating the coronavirus and returning our economy to good health. So first of all, I think we should all thank our lucky stars that Trump is not in charge of the Fed, and so he shouldn't get credit for their good decisions. But more to the point, this policy of you know, balancing risks, all that's very important, but that's not what our current president is on the path of. We've seen patterns of denial, of obfuscation, of complete lack of a national strategy. And even just recently, the president said, referred to the COVID death toll if you, quote, take out the blue states. I'm from one of those blue states, and I would like a president who cares whether one of my family members or one of my neighbors or one of my friends dies or is seriously affected by coronavirus. And the fact of the matter is, if you want political leadership that cares about what I believe is the most acute issue facing our country today, you're going to need to vote for a different president come November. And Charlie, your response. I believe that President Trump was handed a very difficult situation to deal with, and we should consider the fact that any leader for whom this was thrown to would have a very difficult time addressing it. The United States has not fared substantially worse than our developed counterparts in Western Europe or in other parts of the world. And granted the circumstances, we have made the best decisions that we could with the information we had at the time. We believe that our core values and principles are one of our greatest assets moving forward to further combat the recession that is the consequence of this virus and that we are well positioned for an economic recovery come re-election in November. Thank you both for that good discussion. Now moving on to a similar topic, but slightly different. For several decades, wages have been stagnant and inequality grew substantially. To the Republicans, should the government play a role in reducing inequality through welfare policies? Certainly. The government has an incentive to use welfare to prevent absolute poverty, but the government should not attempt to use welfare policies to reduce inequality because it simply doesn't work. Let me explain. Ballooning social spending has magnified wealth inequality because it displaces private wealth accumulation by lower class and middle class households. 
Countries such as Germany, France, Austria, the Netherlands, and the Nordic countries that the left likes to tout so much are perfect examples of this policy in action. Each of these countries have extraordinarily high social spending and income inequality is lower. Yet the more important metric, wealth inequality, is far larger than in the United States. Very low private wealth holdings from less well-off households are the norm in these countries and welfare spending is negatively correlated with household net wealth in every single instance. Measured inequality of wealth without fail accompanies growing welfare policies. Why is this the case? Because it incentivizes long-term reliance on the state, because it reduces the means for ordinary households to save and invest, it crowds out private savings as they reduce the need to save personal financial assets, and for instance in Denmark, a country again toted by the left as a paragon of virtue, net wealth is negative among the bottom 60% of all households. Certainly welfare is important to prevent absolute poverty, to reduce inequality. Welfare is not the preferred solution. First of all, I'm not going to pretend that any country in the world has figured out a solution to wealth inequality. But platitudes like economic growth do not mean a thing if that growth is not distributed to all Americans. No economy can function without labor, and when businesses do not take care of their workers in the interest of profit maximization, Americans suffer, and it is the duty of the government to step in and protect the people, and in doing so, the government protects the economy. I'll give you some stats on the economy right now. Real wages have not grown since the 1980s. Four individuals hold more wealth than the bottom 50% of Americans combined. Social mobility is at its lowest in a century. And the upward re redistribution of wealth has cost the bottom 50% of Americans $50 trillion since 1980. Our economy is running on fumes, and the rise of automation means that it will collapse if we do not protect American workers through government action. So what do we do about this? We can institute a UBI program, championed by Andrew Yang, to redistribute wealth to the lower half of the country. We can enforce antitrust legislation and break up big corporations that profit cut and seize the wages of the workers to boost the stock, their stock values. And we can raise taxes on the, wealthy and er, on the wealthy and corporations and redistribute that wealth to the bottom part of the country. Our government has worked for the, one, the richest 1% among us for the last 40 years. It's time that we make it work for the 99%. Thank you, Zach. I want to follow up on that question. You say that, and, and this is to Charlie, you say, Zach says that four individuals own so much wealth and that automation is only going to further that divide. What specific policies do you put forth to prevent this from happening? And how do you make do of Zach's proposal for universal basic income? That's a great question. Thank you so much for asking it. We believe that instead of focusing on failed welfare policies, the government should devote all of its time and resources to ensuring that all Americans have an equal opportunity to succeed in our marketplace. The government should focus on empowering consumers by incentivizing market choice and encouraging people to work whenever possible. Our current welfare state perpetuates a culture of dependency, degrades the dignity of work, and is far too expensive to justify any longer through higher taxes and higher borrowing. On the question of universal basic income, we on the Republican side see no compelling or conclusive evidence to suggest that this, like any other welfare policy focused on redistributing wealth, would do anything in the long term to reduce anything aside from income inequality, but would only further exacerbate asset inequality between the poorest and richest Americans. We feel this is the most important thing, whereas they prioritize petty income um, disparities. Thank you. And Zach. You say you're in favor of opportunity, but then you also say you're in favor of an unregulated free market. And in my view, the two are, they're fundamentally opposed. 
because as the free market, as individuals gather wealth in the free market, they will act with that wealth to protect their children and so that their children can remain wealthy. And so the poor remain poor and the rich get richer. And this cannot work. As to the automation question, it's a tough one. And our future is certainly in doubt because of it. But I believe that private ownership of automation will only lead to increases in wealth inequality. We need to institute a universal basic income to ensure that the, low, the lower class receive their fair share of this effort. I'd like to address the idea that inheritance in and of itself is negative for most people in the United States. And I would completely agree with this characterization. I think this is actually a huge problem in how our wealth is distributed. However, the liberal policy that's been proposed does more to exacerbate inheritance inequality. Because again, their policy focuses exclusively on income inequality, not asset inequality. When one person passes away and leaves their inheritance to another person, those assets are naturally going to be passed on. They aren't taxed by the state very much, and they are going to inherit those things. If people are using disposable income to finance their lifestyles, disincentivized from saving and not able to build up a solid asset base, that is going to be what perpetuates inequality by not allowing those in the lower classes to inherit more. Because again, they are prioritizing not real asset or wealth equality, but instead income inequality. It is an unsustainable and short-term model. You know, I'm glad that you brought up wealth instead of income because this is actually one of the issues that I fundamentally disagree with a lot of moderate Democrats on. Democratic presidential candidates like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have proposed a wealth tax in which you take the wealth of the, of the extremely wealthy. I believe Elizabeth Warren was going to take two cents on every dollar. And you can use that to fund government programs that would benefit the poor. As my opponent said, assets are the most fundamental thing in terms of perpetuating inequality, not income, because income taxes, are, they affect the lower classes more. And so what you need to do is you need to tax the wealth, you need to tax the assets of the rich and redistribute that to the poor to fix income inequality. Thank you. Thank you for a robust conversation about the economy from both sides. We will now move on to a foreign policy discussion. Starting with the general question to the Democrats, how would you grade Trump's administration, administration's foreign policy? Which aspects have been beneficial and which aspects have been not beneficial? Well, first of all, I'd give the Trump administration probably a D plus on foreign policy. <laughs> and it's probably been their best area over the last four years. The US certainly needs to take a harder line on China, especially given their various human rights abuses and growing security threat. And I commend the Trump administration for doing this. He's pushed NATO to meet their agreed upon contributions to the common defense, yes. But that common defense was designed to defend against Russia and other totalitarian countries, to which Trump has cozied up to, including Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un in North Korea. He promised to bring our troops home, but 160,000 active duty troops are still abroad. Only a 15% decline from 2016. He stabilized relations between Israel and Bahrain and the UAE, but he also moved the US embassy to Jerusalem and has continually expressed no support for Palestinians. He's also accelerated drone strikes in the Middle East. He removed the United States from the Iran nuclear bar, uh, Iran nuclear deal in 2018. And two years later, his administration says that Iran has enough nuclear material to build a bomb. Every foreign policy success you will hear from the Republicans has been accompanied by one or several failures in that region, which has ultimately reduced the US's standing around the world. A median of 32 developed countries around the world had 65% of its population express a lack of confidence in Trump to do the right thing when it comes to foreign policy. Our reputation around the world is in disrepair, and we need a new president that will fix that. 
I think I'd really have to disagree with my colleague on the left about his characterization on Trump's foreign policy goals. I would probably give the president between a B plus and an A minus, and here's why. What victories have we achieved since President Trump took office? I think that President Trump's foreign policy has been all about dialogue, dialogue with our allies that brought about the destruction of ISIS, dialogue with North Korea over de-escalating nuclear tensions, dialogues with the Balkan states of Kosovo and Serbia to strengthen economic ties and reduce conflict in that area to a level unforeseen since their violent civil war in the mid-1990s dialogue with the Taliban to end an 18-year conflict and finally withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Dialogue with the Middle East peace agreement, the Abrahamic Accords signed just last week, which signals a total paradigm shift in U.S. foreign policy as Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates for the first time ever have normalized relations with Israel and they are the first Persian Gulf countries ever to do so. Dialogue with our continental neighbors, such as um, Canada and Mexico, through the signing of the 2018 U.S.-Canada-Mexico trade agreement, trade agreement to replace NAFTA and create economic prosperity on our continent and set precedent for global trade policy, and even difficult dialogue with China to reach important trade understandings when they have failed to comply with a global rules-based order. Trump negotiates on America's behalf from a position of strength, and I think he's done a very good job so far. Thank you, Charlie. I want to follow up on Charlie really quick. You gave him a B plus and A minus. We're at Notre Dame. We like A's. What could push Donald Trump to an A? I think that the president has a very um, cavalier style to conducting international policy and foreign relations that may sometimes be less well received by our major allies in Europe, where a more sophisticated climate is the norm. And this behavioral approach to foreign policy has perhaps lost the U.S. some prestige in the region, but I have absolutely no doubt that this has no long-term ramifications or damage to our foreign policy. You know, I'm all in favor of dialogue. I think it's actually a great thing. But when the dialogue consists of asking Russia for help in our elections or asking Ukraine for help in our elections, I think that's terrible. And I think his foreign policy has signaled that he'd like assistance in his domestic policy and corrupted our elections. That cannot be allowed to stand. Our foreign policy must represent the U.S. as a whole's best interests abroad, not the interests of a select few. And we need a new president that will embrace that kind of dialogue. All right, let's move on to something more specific, to the college Democrats. President Trump has continued to develop the United States' special relationship with Israel in its efforts to stabilize the Middle East. Should Israel receive preferred status in U.S. foreign policy? Bluntly, no. In 1967, Israel seized Palestinian territories in Gaza and the West Bank by force and continues to implement military rule over them to this day. Now, where I come from, we have a phrase for this kind of thing. We call it an occupation. And leave no doubt, this is an occupation of three and a half million Palestinians, plain and simple. And it should result in a humanitarian outrage around the world similar to that seen in South Africa during apartheid. While Israel continues this occupation, the United States should not hold them in preferred status. Just as we should condemn a Russian occupation of Crimea, we must condemn the Israel Israeli occupation of Palestine. At the very least, the U.S. should not help them cement their holding there. The U.S. should not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. It should not recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights neighborhood. You cannot stabilize a region with occupation. It only leads to resentment. It is time for this occupation to end, and the U.S. should leverage all diplomatic means necessary to make it so. Israel has been the key to successful U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East for a very long time. 
Its status as a preferred United States ally should continue to remain the same because of the amount of time and energy that we have spent developing our relationship with that country and how much peace we have been brokering between it and the countries that surround it. Make no mistake, Israel, like all other states, is not a perfect country. It has its own demons to reckon with. But Israel, unlike any other country in that region, has consistently been a United States ally. And we have made great strides in maintaining this relationship under President Trump. As my colleague on the left said, by moving the United States Embassy to Jerusalem, by signing the Abrahamic Accords, by getting the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain to recognize Israel, President Trump has done more than any other president in recent memory to cement a critical player in that region to ally with the United States. It gives us a great foothold from which we can conduct foreign policy operations to more hostile countries. If we cannot stabilize Israel, we cannot stabilize the Middle East, and it is extraordinarily important that we continue to treat Israel as a preferred ally, given the relationship we have built up and given the special cultural ties, military ties, and economic ties that we have with that nation. You know, it's interesting, and I find it incredibly interesting that you would categorize the U.S.'s foreign policy in the Middle East as a success, given that we were in two endless wars for the last 20 years. I also find it interesting that you tie, that you define the stability of the Middle East as directly tied to Israel being there, instead of looking at the fact that Israel being there could be a direct cause of the instability. We need a more nuanced approach to this. We need new foreign policy, not the same one that's been in place for the last 25 years, and I hope Joe Biden will do just that. I couldn't agree with you more that we need a new policy in the Middle East than the one we've seen over the past 25 years namely the eight years under Barack Obama that Joe Biden was president, or those successors that came before him who have continued the status quo in Israel. President Trump is the first president to break with this status quo, and I am entirely confident that we will continue to move in a new direction and that this will create peace and stability for the region, as well as cement U.S. hegemony abroad. Yep. Yeah, so... All right, we'll, no we'll move on to the, to the next question. TikTok has become a symbol of rising distrust and rising economic power of China. To the Republicans, what should be done to combat China's rising power and human rights abuses? Yes, certainly. I think that the key word in the U.S.-China relationship is reciprocity. China is more than free to compete in a globally competitive marketplace, but it has to play by the rules and adhere to internationally respected norms and values. If it doesn't, it should expect a proportional response. China's consistently violated international law, and even as my Democratic colleagues have conceded, he has been one of the only presidents to truly hold them accountable. Let's delve into that a little bit. In the South China Sea, China has aggressively expanded land claims outside of agreed-upon territorial borders. How did the U.S. respond? Under President Trump, the U.S. Navy and Air Force have conducted freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea to support regional allies and preserve the rule of law. The Chinese company Huawei has threatened U.S. national security by using grid infrastructure to spy on Americans. How did we respond? Reciprocally, by imposing sanctions on chip manufacturers critical to that company's business success. China has failed to meet the conditions it agreed to in trade agreements and stolen billions of dollars worth of U.S. intellectual property. How did we respond? By imposing proportional tariffs on their exports until they satisfied their end of the bargain. The U.S. Cannot, can combat China's rising power and abuses by holding it accountable to a rules-based global order. Accountable to trade agreements, accountable to U.S. allies in the region like South Korea and Japan, and accountable to international law. 
President Trump has been the only person to hold China accountable in a very long time. I'd like to respond to that um, in a couple of ways. First of all, I recognize there's a real importance of engaging with China on the ideological battlefield. TikTok's an important part of that, right? TikTok uses a secretive algorithm that is potentially susceptible to Chinese Communist Party control. But what that threat also means is that we need a coherent approach. We don't need Trump deciding to ban it because a couple teens on TikTok messed with his rally in Tulsa and then trying to skim off the top of whatever deal gets brokered. In the example of the South China Sea uh, accomplishment, yes, great, Trump's conducted these exercises, but ask yourself, do you really believe for an instant that if China gave him a backdoor into Joe Biden's Gmail account, he wouldn't stop those exercises in a second? This illustrates a fundamental truth. It's not just a crack. Trump's successes in foreign policy depend on the world's assumption that he's just a fun diversion. So you can throw him a success here or a bone there, and then maybe he might chip you some missiles or sign an agreement, because he doesn't really, at his core, care about that stuff anyway. But if he wins re-election this time and the world starts to adapt to a world order of Trump, we are in for a world of uncertainty, of emboldened adversaries who know that the American president can get bought off by political assistance and sell out American troops and values for his personal gain. And if we accept a world order predicated on that, which will happen if Trump gets reelected, then we're in for a world of hurt and a decreased role on the international stage. I hope that you're not okay with that because I am certainly not. Thank you to Charlie. Coherence is one of President Trump's hallmarks of foreign policy. No one country is exempt from the reciprocal action the United States will take if they violate a rules-based global and international order. Ha! Huh? Rules and accountability are the name of the game in Trump foreign policy, and the Democratic candidate for president, despite 36 years in the Senate, and eight as our nation's vice president has failed to hold China accountable, there is no reason to believe that he will do otherwise as our nation's president. Charles, you do injury to the memory of Jamal Khashoggi, a lion for the free press in the Western world, when you dishonor his memory as such as to suggest that President Trump will hold accountable every person that violates an international norm, that's just ridiculous. We know that while Trump might align with my policy priorities in some cases or his in other cases. Fundamentally, the only reason he's making these decisions is for his own self-interest, and America is better than that. I, I suspect that this conversation is becoming too much about Trump's character and not about policy. So I'm going to switch over to Patrick and ask him specifically about Trump's sanctions on China and how you feel about the sanctions that he implemented against China. Can you be more specific? Yes, the economic sanctions on manufacturing. Again, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think that Trump's one day, other day, incoherent, inconsistent approach to a China policy does a great disservice to America's image on the world stage, right? He brokers a trade deal that places particular emphasis on soybeans because he knows he has to win Iowa, right? He takes a hard line on China in some, uh, in some cases and takes an easy line on them in other cases, but we all know that he's not acting in the persistent national interest of the United States. And frankly, I'd like to assert that in the, in the world stage where there's not an international legal actor to hold everyone to account, character matters more than any, anything. Our tr your trust in the character of our president is the only thing that can keep you confident that when he goes into the room alone with another world leader, that he has your best interest and my best interest and our family and our nation's best interest at heart. Character matters more than anything 
in that regard. And that is something that this president is lacking in spades. I simply fail to understand how my colleague on the left believes that China has been haphazard or inconsistent when it comes to China policy. Let me elaborate on that a little bit. With the particular economic sanctions he mentions on soybeans with regards to Iowa, this is part of an agreement where, through show of force with China and holding them accountable to past trade agreements, they agreed to purchase more United States energy before the coronavirus hit, and they failed to meet those quotas in August, hence triggering another round of sanctions, because they failed to make due on the promises that they made under the rules-based global order. We, in tandem, um, retaliated against them, and those are the only drivers of United States foreign policy with regards to China in an economic context. Every trade policy decision has been predicated on the violation of a stipulation in an international agreement to bring about a reciprocal trade relationship that China has failed to honor under Joe Biden's vice presidency and for the past eight years before President Trump. Uh, you can go to the next question. All right. Um, President Trump has been openly critical of American membership in multilateral agreements such as the North American Treaty Organization, the World Trade Organization, the World Health Organization, and even the United Nations. Is U.S. membership in these organizations important to college Republicans? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think membership in these organizations is very important, and I actually think President Trump would agree. It was the United States at Dumberton Oaks and Bretton Woods that helped found many of these critical multilateral frameworks that still persist this day. But we need to look at what their original purposes were. It was once again to create, as President Trump has tried to restore, a rules-based global order. Let's take the North Atlantic Treaty Organization as just one example. It was founded after World War II to keep Soviet power in check, and the idea is a really good one. It's premised on the idea of collective defense in exchange for collective spending. And all member nations under NATO have pledged 2% of their gross domestic product towards funding the alliance. But out of 29 members, only nine have met that requirement this year. Before President Trump took office, it was only Germany, the United Kingdom, and the United States, three countries that met this requirement. The United States, despite being one of 29 members in NATO, funds 22% of NATO's central budget more than any other member state. So it's logical of President Trump to be skeptical of membership in these organizations. And we all should be skeptical because, once again, reciprocity is not assured under this multilateral framework. Other countries benefit from the system, yet they don't play by the rules. I believe, and the Republican Party believes, that international leadership in these organizations is critical to continued foreign policy success, but sometimes leadership means making sure everybody else is following the rules. You just don't have a rules-based foreign policy when your decisions about what the U.S. foreign policy towards a nation, for example, of, of Ukraine, in terms of military assistance, is predicated on whether that nation will render tangible support to the incumbent president in the election. The president is not the state, and their interests should not be conflated. And I think here is where the dangers of a second Trump term become especially clear. Because the liberal international's order, yes, can survive an equalization of the spending uh, between NATO members. But what it can't survive is a, a sense from other members nationwide that Trump was not an aberration, that Trump's isolationism, that his 
pulling back and forth on international agreements. I think it's telling that Charles didn't talk at all about the World Health Organization, which uh, Trump decided to pull out of based on personal animosity with China, thus giving away any further leverage America would have to reform the World Health Organization, right? It's just another example of a leader with no coherent foreign policy, only instincts, instincts that in some cases are good, in most cases are bad, and in all cases are unreliable and produce uncertainty. It's just another instance of what he's doing to the world order and which will haunt us all for generations to come if we allow him to win re-election and allow Trumpism to become American foreign policy for the next four years. And Chicharri. You know, I'd like to step back for a second and actually completely agree with what you said. The president most certainly is not the state, but again, I really fail to understand where the allegations my colleague on the left is levying come from. Claims that all foreign policy are self-interested is not rooted in substantiated claims, and I've spent the past 20 minutes on this stage going over exactly why in different parts of the world. We cannot be part of a multilateral framework that is not truly multilateral. We are unilaterally operating the global organizations, unilaterally funding the global organizations, meant to keep our world safe. Other countries need to be held accountable and they need to step up and President Trump, unlike Joe Biden, has been the only person to do that over the past several presidencies. And to Patrick, I'll give you an opportunity to respond to those claims, but I also want you to address this claim that when Trump took office, only three people were paying into, three countries were playing into NATO, and now there are nine, and what you make of that? Charles is right. You can look at the numbers. My assessment is not that there's been no foreign policy successes during Trump's terms. There's been successes, there's been failures, there's been great inconsistency where you can't really draw a line between a, a, a coherent foreign policy that informs which of those are successes and which are failures. The only line, if any, you can draw is that we have a reality show president who's relying on his gut instincts about reciprocity, about revenge, about punishment, and about personal interest that make us better off in some cases, like NATO, that make us worse off in the majority of cases, and that make every nation around the world know that they can't trust us moving forward. So you can choose whether you want to trade small successes, individualized, instantiated successes for a general failure in American foreign policy that will haunt our accomplishments and our strategies for years to come. You can make that call, but I don't think that focusing on the granular instance is enough to justify what, what this president has done to our image on the national stage. These instances of foreign policy success are far from granular. They are substantial and they are not sporadic or random. They are concentrated and based on a foreign policy ideology that is a distinct departure from the doctrines put forth under President Obama or under President Bush for that matter. Uh, Donald Trump is committed to pursuing an America first foreign policy and we believe that this has worked quite well. The left itself has conceded many of the successes that have gone along with this and if their only criticism is that it's too sporadic that they simply can't make sense of the framework that has informed these successes, I would ask them to look to the evidence and to the results. It's, I think we can agree. It's not, it's not exclusively successes. It's not exclusively failures. So what it comes down to under the assessment that every president's going to have some successes and have some failures in the foreign policy arena is whether you want those to be predictable and according to a thought-through strategy or whether you want them to be according to the whims of Donald Trump. Well, we'll let the audience decide that last question. We thank both of you for your participation in today's debate, and we are now ready for concluding statements. So we'll move to the concluding statement of the College Republicans. The 2020 presidential election will be perhaps the most contentious in modern United States history. Voters are tasked with a choice between two candidates 
each with his own unique experiences, perspectives, and moral shortcomings. Thankfully, it's not the job of the American people to pass judgment about which of these two men is the lesser of two evils. No, in this election, the American public must decide the future policy direction of our country. In light of the sweeping crisis caused by the coronavirus, there has never been a stronger need for a clearly defined policy agenda. There has seldom been a need for a president who believes in free markets, U.S. strength abroad, and rule of law more than today. Between the time that President Trump was elected and the coronavirus came to the United States, the United States saw unprecedented economic growth, unrivaled prosperity, and unparalleled opportunity for all Americans. To recover from this successfully, we cannot return to the Obama era's legacy of odious regulation and excessive taxation. Moreover, for the first time in recent memory, the United States has held friends and foes alike accountable on the international stage in a cogent policy framework. By engaging our allies in substantive dialogue and negotiating from a position of strength with our competitors, the President has put America first in his foreign policy. To return to the type of foreign policy the Democratic candidate has practiced for the better part of 40 years would be a hindrance to global stability and a blow to U.S. hegemony. Finally, in light of the imminent lawless action perpetuated by the far left over the past several months, the need for strong rule of law has never been clearer. The president has made it clear that he won't stand for it and neither should you. In 2020, think of what policies you most want to see implemented over the next 20, 50, 100 years. This election is about rebuilding American fundamental values and staying true to our founding timeless principles. Thank you. I apologize for interrupting you, Charlie. We'll now move to Patrick for the College Democrats' closing statement. So you've heard a lot about politicians and policies over the course of this debate, and that's important. I'd like to articulate some values. You've heard two visions, two stories of America tonight. One is vaccinates incoherently between fear and complacency. Immigrants are going to bring drugs and take your jobs, as Adam suggested, but the free market's got climate change, don't worry. The government sending you a check in the middle of a pandemic would degrade you and take away your dignity, as Charlie implied. But a good healthcare system just requires that a certain number of poor people are going to die every year because they lack coverage, and you have to be okay with that. The thread between these, of course, is a certain devotion to the social order as it is and the hope that you, a student, a young person today, are going to spend your life too comfortable to ever really challenge that social order. By contrast, our story takes the proper attitude towards American history and America today. It's fundamentally hopeful. It tells a story in which the establishment of slavery and the Declaration of Independence are both foundational moments in American history, in which the promises of America are not yet fully realized, and in which the work falls on each subsequent generation to further the extension of their, these ideals. They say we should be satisfied. We say we should push forward. The American story is one of great failures and great redemptions. And the Democratic Party, my party, is a perfect example. We've gone from a party established by the genocidal Andrew Jackson and espoused by the Confederate uh, Jefferson Davis to today the best political vehicle for racial and social equality in our time. This is due to the courageous work of politicians and men and women across the board, many of whom loved America even when America did not love them back. So our vision of America is one of hope, hope for a better nation, for a better world, and for progress. 
It's going to take fighting for, but I believe it's worth fighting for. And I ask you to join the Democratic Party in that fight. Thank you. We would like to thank college Democrats and college Republicans for a very informative and lively debate this evening. We urge you to continue to practice this civil discourse in your dorm community, among friends, and help build a better political climate on campus and in this country. If anything said tonight resonated with you, each club will now be given time to describe what type of engagement they have planned this semester and how to get involved. I'll start. ND Votes is a task force composed of liaisons from every dorm and issue-focused clubs on campus. So if you'd like to become a representative on our task force, please email ndvotes at nd.edu. And this fall, we plan on hosting documentary watches, voter registration dives, and our, launch our pilot podcast, Pizza, Pod, and Politics. Check out our Instagram at ndvotes for more voter education resources and to follow along with what we're doing. Thank you. And I'll go next for Bridge ND. You know, you guys didn't see it off the screen, but they all just shook hands, and that's exactly what Bridge ND is about. We're the club for bipartisan political discussion on campus, and we welcome anybody, not just if you're Republican or Democrat, if you're somebody trying to figure it out, if you're a socialist, if you're an anarchist, we welcome you to have civil conversations with everyone. We host weekly meetings on Monday to discuss different policy issues. We also host events throughout the year, including support, supporting this one. Next week, we'll be hosting an event with two former members of Congress the day after the debate with Notre Dame students to analyze the debate itself. We'll also be hosting Converge ND with the support of student government and ND votes and other clubs. And we, enverge, we encourage you all to join that. If you're interested in Bridge ND, email us at bridgend at nd.edu. Thank you. College Democrats? Yeah, absolutely. College Democrats is going to be your one-stop shop for everything Democratic on campus and off campus. We're going to be hosting events throughout the year, bringing speakers to campus. We'll also be connecting you with internship opportunities out in the community and nationally, as well as engaging with local activism groups here on Notre Dame's campus. We'll be hosting election watches, voter registration drives, and anything else that you feel the idea uh, to, pr to present to us. We meet every other Tuesday at 5.30. We may have additional events, but that's pretty set in stone. If you're interested, you can e shoot us an email at cdems.nd.edu. If you're interested in joining the College Republicans, you can email us at callrepub1 at nd.edu. Our next meeting is actually going to be next week on Tuesday. We're going to have a debate watch in DeBardo 102 in the big auditorium. I wanted to get you know as big of a space as we can to try to fit as many people as we can while still maintaining uh, the distancing requirements. Next week, we also have elections for uh, some of our positions. So if you're a new member who's joining just today, you can still run for positions such as freshman representative, vice president, or coordinator of social activities. We're going to be getting involved in Republican campaigns as well well through phone banking, which is calling voters and asking them survey questions provided to us by the Indiana uh, Republican Party. Again, if you're interested, you can just email us at callrepub1 at nd.edu. Thank you. Well, it's been a lively conversation between the two sides, and we thank you, the audience, for joining us in tonight's event. And we, we encourage you all to find areas of agreement with both sides after tonight's debate. Talk with your friends who you came to this event with and figure out and try to make do of your own political beliefs. With that, I believe we have some announcement that Rachel will make and then we're done. Is it event online? Oh yeah, um, the debate will be available on NDTV on their YouTube and we will also be publishing it as a podcast as a part of ND Votes. Go Irish, beat civic indifference. Thank, Thank you. you all.
Andy Votes would like to thank the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, the Constitutional Studies Minor, and Andy Student Media for their support in production of this podcast. We would also like to thank our wonderful participants in the debate, college Democrats, college Republicans, Andy Student Media, and Andy Student Government. As always, Andy Votes reminds you to register to vote and request your absentee ballot as soon as possible using the link on our website and or in our Instagram bio. Also, check out the voter education resources on our website. Your vote matters. Get political.